Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus in chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood, and a cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around its sides. I'm sorry, around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put in front of it, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamp, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you would help us as we consider it, that you would, would show us the meaning, help us to understand how the altar of incense relates to us today. Lord, show us Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Now, it's interesting, as we come to this piece of furniture, this is the one piece of furniture that's not mentioned in connection with the other pieces of furniture we've already looked at. So remember, we looked at the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, and then we've looked at the priest and their clothing, and now here we come back to this one piece. Perhaps it's because it wasn't discussed until there were priests that were there to burn incense on it. On the other hand, we see also, though, that the other altars where there would be sacrifices were told before there were priests. So no real understanding of why, but for whatever reason, it's placed after the priest. Now, the description of it, it's a cubit in its width and its length. And remember, a cubit is basically the tip of your fingernails or tip of your fingers to your elbow, which is roughly a foot and a half. So it's only a foot and a half square, and it's two cubits tall, which would be three feet. So almost what we would think of like the size of an end table you might have in your house. And like the table of showbread, it was made of acacia wood, it was covered with gold, 
and just like it had a gold rim to it or border around the edges. It's also interesting in this, though, that it had horns on the corner. So four horns on it. So as you think about that, where have we seen four horns on a square altar before? All right, the closest connection probably is the brazen altar that we've seen out in the courtyard. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but it's perfectly square, just like the brazen altar. It has the horns, it has the rim, and all that. It has two rings to carry it on. It's made of pure gold, though, instead of bronze because of its location. Where is it located? You may have caught that it said that it was set almost against the veil, almost touching the veil to the Holy of Holies. So it's in the holy place, not in the holy of holies or most holy place, but it's right outside the veil and in the middle. So directly behind or directly past the altar of incense would have been what? It would have been the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat, the testimony. It would have been directly behind it. So this altar of incense stood in front of the veil, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was a daily routine for the priest. The priest would take burning coal from the sacrificial altar, from the brazen altar out in the courtyard, and they would fill a censer with that, and then they'd sprinkle this recipe of incense on top of it, and then carry it in and set it on the table there. And this happened every morning and every evening that they would do this. And... On this table, on the corners, on the horns, blood would be placed once a year from the sacrifice of atonement, again, that took place out in the courtyard. Nothing was to be sacrificed on this, even though it's called an altar. Nothing could ever be burned on it. There could not be a grain offering placed on it. And no drink offering could be poured out on it. It only was for incense, again, except for the corners, that blood would be placed on the four corners, or the horns, of this table once a year. And the incense had to be only of a certain recipe. Maybe some of you in your home, you're very particular about your recipe. If it's not your wife's recipe or mom's recipe, then it's not really that food item. You know, it's got to be just this certain way. Well, God has a certain recipe for this. We're going to look at verses uh, 34 through 38 of this same chapter where he describes the recipe for this. I felt bad for Charles. I always feel bad when people do the scripture reading and we get to some of the hard uh, Hebrew names. And so uh, bear with me here. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stat, see here we are, stat, and onisha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you, I'm sorry, and then the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So God gives a very 
specific recipe, at least the ingredients had to be put into it. And the, the perfumer was to make this. And it's interesting that this same recipe could not be used anywhere else in your life. So maybe you come into, well, you'd have to be out in the courtyard and maybe you catch a whiff of the incense. You go, oh, I really like that smell. I'm going to get the perfumer to make some for my house. Or or maybe I'm going to wear this. This is my new stylish cologne that I'm going to put on. And God says, if you do that, you're cut off from his people. Cut off from the people would have been cast out of the community. But it also has that importance of the covenant people of God. To be cut off from the people of God is to be outside of God's salvation. He's saying, you're going to be cast out if you use this for anything other than my holy purpose. Something similar happens in verse 9 of our text, 30, chapter 30, verse 9. It says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So it's not just these other offerings. You cannot put any incense on it except for this one recipe. It's one thing could go on it, and that's it. And to demonstrate, perhaps, the seriousness of God's command... We have the example that probably many of you are familiar with, but that of Nadab and Abihu. This is from Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so let that sink in for a second. The sons of the high priest were only one generation removed. His sons each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I can say a lot about that passage, but at the very least, we could say, and God's very serious about the recipe, isn't he? You're to do it as he commanded, and not to do so is a problem. Now, we don't know exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. It says they offered unauthorized fire. It could be that they used the correct recipe at the wrong time. It wasn't time to put incense in, but they go, I really like that smell. I'm going to do it at lunchtime today. Or it may be that they wanted to tweak the recipe or offer something else. But whatever it was, it was not as God had prescribed it. And what happened? Fire came out from before the Lord. So it's got to be speaking of from the Ark of the Covenant. Or above the Ark of the Covenant, fire came out and consumed them. And there's a bit of irony even in God's justice because they offered strange fire to God and God consumed them with this strange fire. Coming out of apparently nowhere and consuming them altogether. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are... Are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And then did you catch the end? And Aaron held his peace. Both your children just got consumed by fire. And he's not upset with God about it because God has done what's right. God warned them. God told them he was to be sanctified. And whatever Nadab and Abihu did, they did not revere God as holy. Think about what we've seen already in our worship service. We serve a holy God. And they approached God as though he was common. As though they could do what they wanted to. Maybe when they wanted to do it or how they wanted to do it. 
But they approached God in a way that was not authorized. And God consumed them. So, let's talk a little bit about the altar and what its purpose was. I think there were at least two purposes for the altar of incense. Uh, Briefly, I want to touch on one and then we'll spend a little bit more time on the second one. But the first purpose is that it served as a cloud of protection for the people of God. Or specifically for the priests that would enter in and the high priests who would go into the Holy of Holies. A cloud of protection. Now why is that? Well, the smoke, you understand when the incense is burned. I, I told somebody I really considered going and buying some incense and burning it today so you could smell it. But it's done in, in other services in ways that I think God doesn't authorize. And I don't want us to confuse our worship service, but that you would see the smoke go up and how it penetrates the room. But a cloud would have filled in the area of the tent, probably even going through the veil into the Holy of Holies, being smelled out in the courtyard. Listen to Leviticus 16.13. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So burn it in a way that it's going to end up, the incense, the cloud is going to fill the area above the mercy seat. The mercy seat, remember, is the, the top lid for the Ark of the Covenant. So that room is going to be filled. The Holy of Holies will be filled with smoke twice a day. But I stopped before we finished the verse. That the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And so one clear purpose that God has given us for the altar of incense was to save the life of the priest. Now, not a lot's given to us about that. But it made a cloud in the Holy of Holies. It made a cloud in the most holy, or in the holy place. And I want to take you back for a second and think about what we've seen in God's Word where we were told that this is to be made after the pattern for which you were shown on the mountain. Now, if you're tracking with me and everything we've done, we've said that God revealed to Moses on top of Mount Sinai what the tabernacle was to look like, and he was to follow that exact pattern because that pattern was a model or a replica of the reality of what heaven is like. Now, obviously, it's imperfect replica. But we're getting a glimpse into the throne room. But as we think about that, part of Moses' experience on Mount Sinai may well have related. In other words, God may have been revealing some of the pattern in what Moses experienced. Listen to Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so when Moses meets with God, he meets with God in the cloud. And going back to what we saw in Leviticus 16, for the priest, it was for protection. And so it seems at least very likely that when God meets with Moses in the form of fire, his Shekinah glory there, 
he still has to shield his glory, his holiness from him. We're going to see another example of that later on in Exodus. But he can't reveal himself in all he is, or, like Isaiah, he would have been undone, and probably literally this time, not in a vision. He would have been there in the presence of God. And so God clouds his glory with his smoke to protect Moses. That then becomes a pattern in the tabernacle when the high priest would go in, even when any of the priests would approach into the holy place, there would be a cloud of smoke that would cover them for protection against the glory of the Lord. I, I think that just, that ought to humble us. That ought to amaze us. God is so glorious we cannot look upon Him, cannot be in His presence without some form of protection. And we've already seen, and we'll look a little bit more about this, but the atonement that was necessary before the high priest could even go in there. So he's made atonement for his sin. He's sinless. And he goes in there, and what happens? He still needs covering. He still can't uh, appear before God. Even as Charles shared earlier, which I thought was such a great illustration of the seraphim who were without sin still had to cover their face and their, their feet. If we think about that pattern of Mount Sinai and reproducing that in the tabernacle, we've talked a little bit already about, if we think of the top of the mountain as the Holy of Holies, and then we get a little further removed, and remember Aaron and the elders came onto the mountain, but not real close, like the holy place where the priests would be allowed later. And then outside the mountain, or off the mountain, we might have what we'd say the courtyard, where God's people stood far off, they were still relatively in the presence of God, but not too close, like the courtyard. And so we see a pattern that Mount Sinai is a pattern for the tabernacle, and what happened in Mount Sinai is a pattern of the reality of heaven itself. And so the smoke's given for protection from God's holiness. We, we might even think of, with the tabernacle, there are three zones of presence of the Lord. Three levels of holiness as you go closer and closer to the Lord. We've seen that even in the metals. Remember we talked about it goes from bronze to silver to gold to pure gold the closer we get to God. And so it's part of the pattern and God gives his cloud as protection. When God comes down, rather than seeing Aaron in his sin, what he sees or what he beholds is a fragrant smell. A pleasant smell to remind him that they are Offering something to him. Secondly, though, there's a connection with prayer. I would be so bold to say that this was an altar of prayer. It's weird that it's called an altar because there's no sacrifice that happens on it, but they're offering to God a sacrifice of prayer. Now, where do I get that from? Where do I see that? Well, first, remember its location. It's directly in front of the mercy seat. So think about, on earth, the presence of God rested over the mercy seat. And the ark, I'm sorry, the, um, the altar of incense is directly in front of the presence of God. And, and think about even how the New Testament would speak of prayer. We are approaching God. We're entering into the presence of God. We are going before the throne of God. Apart from once a year when the high priest would go in... This is as close as any man could come to approach God. They would come to the altar of incense before the presence of God, before his throne on earth. 
We might say they are coming to the throne of grace where God answers prayer. Leviticus 16, 18. It says, Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. And so the incense is burned before the Lord. Again, much like prayer. And in fact, in the Bible, we find other places where they make that same connection. So I'm not just saying that because of location. For example, I think David was clearly thinking of the altar when he said in Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice would have happened in the courtyard, and at the same time, in the evening, would have been the offering of incense. So count my prayer as incense coming before you. Another example is how God speaks of uh, the, those who are saved, the saints that are in heaven in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So with this vision of what it's like in heaven, they have basically a censer filled with incense, and that sweet-smelling incense is the prayers of God's people. Again, Revelation 8, 3 through 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden, on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now this is probably the one that's most clear. If we think about the tabernacle being a pattern, a copy of what's in heaven, and Revelation gives us a little bit of a picture of what's going on there in heaven, and here's this angel bringing incense to a golden altar before the throne of God. That sound familiar? This is basically what's happening in the tabernacle. And what do we find? What's the recipe in heaven? It's incense mingled or mixed with the prayers of God's people. And so I believe that this altar of incense was meant to be a time of prayer for God's people. It was meant to symbolize God's prayer, or or excuse me, prayer to God going up to him that God found to be a sweet-smelling aroma. Another example of this is in the New Testament. Uh, You may remember... Uh, early chapters of Luke, and uh, we have the story of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Zechariah was a priest that was serving in the temple, and at this time in the temple, uh, they would basically draw lots to see who got to be the one to go light the incense on the altar. But listen, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah goes in and it's called, it says, God's people were outside praying during the the hour of incense. And so... We know for a fact by the time of Jesus' day in the temple that these two went together. That the time of lighting the incense was also a time of God's prayer for his people. Again, I think, especially with the connections we see in Revelation and David, a time of prayer. 
right, going up before God. So when incense was offered, the people of God gathered to pray. Could I use this as a shameless time to encourage you guys? We don't have altars of incense today, but let me encourage you to gather together to pray. This happened twice a day for God's people. We ask of you, apart from Sunday, we'd love for you to come out on Wednesday and pray together once a week. Not asking 14 times, once a week. But we could argue from the same passage that Zechariah was also praying. In verse 13 of Luke 1, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And so, here's Zechariah bringing the, the offering, and when he offers up the incense, an angel appears to him and says, I've heard your prayer. Well, what prayer was that? Well, it could be that he's been praying this for some time. No doubt he has. But if he's the priest that's bringing the incense, and this is the hour of prayer, then he's come before the Lord and he's praying as he offers up the incense. And it's at that moment the angel appears to him and says, I've heard your prayer and will answer it. She's going to have a son and his name will be John. This is, of course, the parents of John the Baptist. So it symbolized their prayers ascending before God. And note that it was a sweet aroma to God. God delighted to smell this. Uh, there's The family sometimes jokes with me because I feel like my nose is super sensitive. And there's some smells that are not a delight to me. I can pick them up and... And some smells that are a delight to other people aren't a delight to me either. Colognes, perfumes. But God is offering up a sacrifice, excuse me, we are offering up a sacrifice to God. Our prayer that is a pleasant aroma to God. God delights to smell it. I don't know what's a pleasant aroma for you, but you can imagine when you smell that, maybe a steak on the grill, start salivating, You're, you're excited to smell that. I don't know. That's maybe not what everyone delights in to smell. Um, I, I remember being in Canada one time, and you always have those uh, those air fresheners here that are like balsam or fur. You know, I love how it smells. And maybe when you put the Christmas tree in, you get a glimpse of it. But we were there in the woods, and like everything smelled like that. I go, wow, this isn't just an air freshener. This is nice. <laughs> Our prayer is a pleasant aroma to God, something that he delights in to smell. Thirdly, I want you to see that there had to be atonement before there could be prayer. Atonement before prayer. Atonement was necessary before the offering of incense. When they brought the incense, they had to sprinkle or place blood on the four corners of the the horns of the altar. And it tells us where that had to come from. Verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So again, back in the courtyard, the brazen altar. So without atonement for our sins, even our prayers are not acceptable before God. Let that sink in. For us to approach the throne of God, there has to be atonement. There's a sense in which we could say that 
because God is sovereign and omniscient, he knows all things, that even the prayers of an unbeliever, God hears. But there's also a way we could say that God hears the prayers of his people in a special way. They come before him on the basis of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and God hears and answers those prayers. And so there's a distinction, I think, being made even here with that same idea. The atonement had to be made before they could approach. I'd also say that every time, morning and evening, was also the time of the sacrifice in the courtyard. So either at the same time or shortly thereafter, the offering of incense would happen at the same time or after the sacrifice that was going on in the courtyard. And so we're encouraged as well that we have access to God in prayer through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us access to the throne of God. Now I mentioned already this is called an altar. And I said it's a similar shape to the brazen altar out in the courtyard, though much smaller. And I had seen that and realized that, and as I was reading through some commentaries, I was just struck by uh, Ian Campbell makes this comparison that I think is spot on and really quite amazing. He didn't go on two slides, so you may not be able to read it, but I'll read it slowly. He says, The golden altar of incense was much smaller than the altar of brass, almost three feet high by foot and a half square. However, they are in the same proportion to the place where they are housed. The brass altar or burnt offering is five cubits square within the courtyard, which is 50 cubits wide. The gold altar of incense is one cubit square within the holy place, which is 10 cubits wide. The width of each altar, therefore, is proportionately a tenth of the width of the part of the construction in which it is placed. This proportion highlights the connection between them. Now, obviously, there is a connection. They're the same shape. They have the horns, but I thought it even becomes more powerful when we understand they're to scale with each other, we might say. Uh, maybe you guys have seen this, even if you think of a television. You put a television in a small bedroom, which probably is not a good idea, but just for comparison. You put a small bed, uh, the TV in a small bedroom, you don't need a very big TV, it fills up the room. You, you have to sit close to it. If it's too big, you, you get whiplash trying to, to watch things, right? But you come in a room like this, and even the screen, I cannot make the font sometimes large enough for you to read it. Right? And I forget what we measured that at, eight feet diagonally or something. So there's a proportion to it where it doesn't seem especially large, but it's compared to the size of the room. So, too, this is almost like as you walk in the holy place, it's like being in the courtyard proportionate to size. And this points to the atonement of Jesus. Uh, this is Imar Dehan. He wrote a book on the tabernacle, and here's what he said. At the brazen altar, Christ died for us, shed his blood, and reconciled us to God, and made us forever secure in him. But at the golden altar, he lives in heaven to intercede for those for whom he has already died, and who are already saved. The brazen altar speaks of the death of Christ, the golden altar speaks of the living, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The two altars, therefore, speak of the death and the resurrection and constitute the full message of the gospel. So the connection between the two, again, 
One is of sacrifice and the other is of intercession. Us to God, but also of the atonement of Jesus Christ with that blood being placed on the altar. God's, Jesus is offering himself up in prayer for us. He's interceding for us. Think about where Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. As we come before in the place of prayer, he's interceding for us. So how does this all apply to us? Well, one, I want to make sure that we understand that for us to pray, for us to speak to God, requires that there be atonement made for our sins. We need to be made right with God that we can appear before Him in His presence. The holiness that we spoke of, even the cloud of incense and how it protected them, we need atonement. One more quote, if you'll bear with me. Phil Riken says, We cannot have fellowship with the Holy God in prayer unless something is done about the penalty we deserve for our sin. We need forgiveness through the blood of the sacrifice. There's no fellowship with God. There's no entering into the presence of God apart from there being atonement made for our sins. Now, in light of that, and we've seen some of this already in our worship service and even the pastoral prayer, if you prayed along with me. But in light of that, we're encouraged that we now pray to God in confidence. We pray to God in confidence. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So Hebrews 10, with reference to the temple and the tabernacle, the veil, he's given us access into the holy place that we can approach with confidence. And I've said this in other sermons, so I won't belabor it, but it is just amazing to me that it speaks of us coming to God in confidence before his throne. That is an experience I don't believe anyone ever had. Probably not Moses when he went on top of the mountain. Not Aaron or the high priest when they entered into the Holy of Holies. Not Isaiah when he sees God even in a vision. And we are told that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in Christ we come before the throne of God confident in boldness. This is also why we come to God in the name of Jesus Christ in prayer. Now, when you pray, two things. One is you don't have to always say in Christ's name. I often will finish my prayers in some way acknowledging that I'm praying this because of Christ who's given me access to you. And that being said, when people in that way, it's not just some uh, religious maybe motto or phrase that we use to somehow give more power to our prayer. We shouldn't do it thoughtlessly. But we come before the throne of God in prayer Because of the work of Jesus Christ. So I said, atonement must be made. Basically, I could say atonement has been made. Therefore, we pray in confidence, point two. Point three, what we saw there at the end of our last uh, major point, but Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. Hebrews 7.25, 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So God is our high, excuse me, Jesus is our high priest. He's there before the throne of God. He's offering or interceding for us on our behalf. Fourthly, I want us to consider, in light of these truths, the neglect of prayer in our own lives. The neglect of prayer. So I've said earlier, morning and evening, over and over, would be a time of prayer for God's people as the incense is offered up before God. And I wonder, do you have a time set aside for prayer? It doesn't necessarily have to be morning and evening. We're not following specifically those patterns. But twice a day, God set a time aside for his people to come and pray. And I wonder how much time are we setting aside in our life to pray? And I even think about this, that in some ways how difficult it was for the Israelites. For them to go to God in prayer required there to be an animal brought and killed and sacrificed there on the altar and burned. And then from the coals of that, placed into a censer and incense, and then to be brought before them, and then they could pray. Twice a day, over and over and over again. And I think we struggle to find two or three minutes to set aside. They probably had to walk the animal into the courtyard in that amount of time. Plus the sacrifice and everything else that would have been required. As hard as it was for them, and then on top of it, all this atonement had to be made because the atonement of Jesus Christ had not yet been made. They didn't have that confidence that we spoke of from Hebrews 7. I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews 10. We come to God in confidence now. We have access to God and we take it for granted. We don't make use of it. I would venture to say there's probably not one of us that makes use of it the way we could or should. And then couple that with the idea that God loves to hear our prayers. I know sometimes we can get the impression that as we pray, it's just like bouncing off the ceiling. God's not hearing it. We can even say, well, God's not answering my prayer. And what we usually mean is God's not answering my prayer the way I told him to answer it or wanted him to answer it. But it can seem like God's not responding to us. But I think we're encouraged from this passage that God delights to hear our prayer. It is something that is a pleasant aroma to God. Something He enjoys and wants. Partly because it's a proper acknowledgement that we come to God as those who are needy. We come to the one who alone can supply for our needs. We come as penitents. We come as those seeking And in doing so, we rightly represent our relationship to God, and that's glorifying to Him. I think about like the parents, that the child comes to them and asks them to do something. And because of our sins, sometimes we might get aggravated. They ask me to do that again. 
But when we really think about it, what a blessing that we get to do this for them. We're, we're sad when the day comes we don't get to tie that shoe anymore. Or they don't want the cuddle before bed. Right? It's a blessing. Something we delight in. We're coming to Him in need. God's Word calls us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, with the authority of God's Word, I can declare to you the will of God for you. Right? People are always asking, what's God's will for my life? Here's your answer. Pray without ceasing. This is what God's will is for your life. He desires that you would pray. It's pleasing to Him. And then finally, I want to encourage you. Fifthly, the Father joyfully hears our prayers when we come to Him on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. When we come to Him in the name of Jesus, by the atoning work of Christ, by the blood of Jesus, the Father joyfully hears our prayers. And in Christ, our prayers are pleasing aroma to Him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you delight to hear our prayers. Lord, the uh, President doesn't delight to hear my voice on the phone if I tried to call. But Lord, you delight to hear our prayers. And we come before you now as those who are needy. Lord, asking that you would work among us. Lord, give us a greater love for you. Give us a greater appreciation of the sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us a heart of prayer. Lord, we pray that this Wednesday night we would have more people in prayer than we have here in worship as both services join together. Lord, that we would be a people committed to pray. Lord, maybe there's few things in our life that we do that we think or that we know that this is delightful for you. That we are pleasing you in what we do. Lord, we seek to do all for your glory. But Lord, you have called us to pray without ceasing. And we are told it's a sweet aroma to you. Lord, may our prayers today rise like incense before you. We pray for any in this room who don't know you. Who cannot come to you in prayer by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That they would place their faith and trust in Christ today. That they would know they have no ability, no access to you. That one day when they do stand before you in judgment, you will cast them out eternally if they're not coming in the atoning work, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We pray they place their trust and faith in Him today. And Lord, that they would know the pleasure and the joy of your delight in their prayer. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.